Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Adam, and I'll be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Sun Life Financial Q1 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. The host of the call is Yaniv Bitten, Vice President, Head of Investor Relations and Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Bitten. Thank you, Adam, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sun Life's earnings call for the first quarter of 2021. Our earnings release and the slides for today's call are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at sunlife.com. We will begin today's presentation with an overview of the first quarter results by Dean Connor, Chief Executive Officer of Sun Life. Following Dean's remarks, Manjit Singh, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, will present the financial results for the quarter. After the prepared remarks, we will move to the question and answer portion of the call. Other members of management will also be available to answer your questions this morning. Turning to slide two, I draw your attention to the cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures, which form part of today's remarks. As noted in the slides, forward-looking statements may be rendered inaccurate by subsequent events. And with that, I'll now turn things over to Dean. Thanks, Yaniv, and good morning, everyone. Let me start by saying we're thinking about our friends, colleagues, clients, and their families in India as the country faces this most extraordinary wave of infections. While our India employees have been working from home since the start of the pandemic, we know that this has been a very difficult time for all of them. We're working with our local teams and health officials to provide additional care and support for our people. We made a donation to India Red Cross, and supporting local charities to help vulnerable people with some of the basics, such as groceries. More broadly, while we're not on the other side of this pandemic yet, there is every reason to be optimistic as the rollout of vaccines builds momentum around the world. Turning to slide four, reported net income of $937 million for the first quarter was up significantly over the prior year on favorable market-related impacts. Underlying net income grew by 10% to $850 million, and underlying earnings per share grew 11% over the first quarter of last year. We generated a strong underlying return on equity of 15.3% in the quarter. Our capital and cash positions continued to remain healthy, and along with a low financial leverage ratio of 22.7%, provide flexibility and opportunities for capital deployment. I want to step back for a moment on the quarter's results and talk about something that has been a long-time priority for Sun Life, and that is sustainability. Our approach to sustainability focuses on what we know best, financial security, healthier lives, and sustainable investing, and we're embedding that into our business. For example, in February, we announced the creation of 34 affordable housing units as part of a new 300-plus unit apartment building we're finishing in the Regent Park neighborhood of Toronto. 
In partnership with Daniels Group and the City of Toronto, these 34 apartments will be leased at roughly half the going market rents through a program that helps homeless or inadequately housed single mothers to achieve lasting economic self-sufficiency. And if you own one of our Sun Life participating whole life policies, you'll be glad to know that your PAR fund owns a significant share of this new building. In March, we set a goal of making an additional $20 billion in new sustainable investments over the next five years across our general account and third-party investments. And that's in addition to the $60 billion of existing sustainable investments. And starting this year, business operations around the world for Sun Life and MFS will be carbon neutral. You'll be hearing more from us on how Sun Life is making a difference on sustainability for our clients, our employees, our communities, and future generations. Coming back to the quarter's financial results, wealth sales and asset management gross flows were up 10%, driven by strong gross sales at SLC management and higher wealth sales in Asia over the first quarter last year. We ended the quarter with $1.3 trillion in assets under management, up 26% over prior year. MFS continued to deliver strong long-term investment performance with 97%, 84%, and 95% of MFS's U.S. retail mutual fund assets ranked in the top half of their Morningstar categories based on 10, 5, and 3-year performance, respectively. Individual insurance sales grew 12% over prior year, with 27% growth in Canada and 12% growth in Asia on a constant currency basis. Total insurance sales were down 6% compared to last year as our group business in Canada continued to see fewer large cases coming to the market during the pandemic. In April, we announced our intention to acquire Pinnacle Care, a leading U.S. healthcare navigation and medical intelligence provider, which will become part of our U.S. stop-loss and health business. This acquisition, which we expect to close later this year, changes stop-loss and health from a business that reimburses employers after an employee's care has occurred to one that gets us involved through Pinnacle Care right from initial diagnosis. This should lead to better health outcomes and better cost management, including lower stop-loss claims for our clients. These new capabilities are exactly in line with our purpose of helping clients live healthier lives. Turning to slide five, we continue on the journey of accelerating everything digital, driven by our purpose and powered with an unrelenting focus on clients. And this quarter was no exception. In Canada, our digital coach, Ella, continues to connect with our clients, helping them save for their future and ensure protection for their loved ones. We're making it easier for clients to do business with us, holding over 61,000 virtual advisor client calls in the first quarter a big jump compared to the 5,000 we held in Q1 of last year. This quarter, we used e-signatures in Canada for over 85,000 transactions, and that compares to 14,000 in the same period last year. In April, we launched Stitch in select U.S. states. Stitch is an innovative supplemental health offering enabling members to buy coverage directly from Sun Life online through their Worksite Benefits Program at any time. This is an important offering as it allows members to take their insurance with them even if they leave the company and will also protect part-time and gig workers who typically are not eligible for employee benefits. 
We've also made great progress in Asia, where 66% of new insurance applications were submitted via an electronic application, an increase of 14 percentage points over the fourth quarter of 2020. We also introduced new digital personal accident and cancer products in collaboration with one of our bank assurance partners in Vietnam to help our clients when they need us the most. These digital products offer a seamless experience to purchase coverage entirely online and receive policies in just minutes via straight-through processing. In the Philippines, we launched a premier digital on-demand wellness platform to help clients focus on their health. The platform, which is called Go Well Studio, offers a variety of features, including virtual exercise programs, guided meditation, and healthcare awareness content. So Sun Life is off to a strong start in 2021 with double-digit earnings growth, a strong ROE, and a strong balance sheet with ample flexibility. As we look ahead, we are well-positioned to benefit from an expanding U.S. economy, the growth in Asia driven by its compelling demographics, and strong momentum in Sun Life Canada. Asset management, as you know, is a large part of our business, and we're well-positioned in MFS, SLC management, and our other managers as clients seek positive alpha in this lower return world. And our insurance businesses are well positioned to do more for clients whose awareness of and need for protection has been reinforced by this pandemic. I'm now pleased to introduce our new CFO, Manjit Singh, who joined Sun Life in March. Manjit brings a wealth of knowledge, including 20 years of experience at one of Canada's largest financial institutions. We're thrilled to have Manjit on board, and he'll take us through the first quarter results. Kevin Strain is also here today and will be available with us for the Q&A portion of our call this morning. And now I will turn things over to Manjit. Good morning, and thank you, Dean. I'm thrilled to join the Sun Life team. This is a global organization with a rich history and a proven track record of strong performance. I've spent the first five weeks of my time at Sun Life meeting with co colleagues across all of our businesses and support functions. It's clear to me that Sun Life has a special culture, a culture where employees, advisors, and partners work together to deliver for all of our stakeholders, especially our clients. I look forward to contributing to Sun Life's future success. Now, let's turn to slide seven for an update on our first quarter results. Amidst the ongoing challenges from the global pandemics, Sun Life delivered reported net income of $937 million, reflecting growth in underlying net income and a favorable impact from equity markets and rising interest rates. This was partially offset by fair value adjustments on MFS share-based awards, reflecting strong earnings and AUM growth. We also recorded a $57 million restructuring charge related to our workspace strategy, which will generate pre-tax savings of approximately $20 million per year. Underlying net income for the quarter was $850 million, an increase of 10% compared to the prior year driven by business growth as well as favorable morbidity and credit experience. This was partially offset by lower investing activity gains compared to elevated gains in the first quarter last year as well as a $31 million unfavorable currency impact. Underlying earnings per share for the quarter were $1.45, an increase of 11% from the prior year, with underlying ROE of 15.3%. Assets under management at the end of the first quarter exceeded $1.3 trillion, reflecting market appreciation during the quarter, net inflows at SLC management, and the acquisition of Crescent Capital. 
Book value per share declined modestly from last quarter, reflecting declines in AFS unrealized gains, foreign currency translation from a stronger Canadian dollar, and the impact of the Crescent acquisition, offset by growth in reported net income. Our capital continues to be strong, with LICOT ratios of 141% at SLF and 124% at SLA. The decline in the SLF ratio from the prior quarter relates, reflects the Crescent Capital acquisition, funding for the ACB bank assurance agreement arrangement, redemption of subordinated debt, and the impact of rising interest rates. The funding of the ACB bank assurance agreement and rising interest rates also impacted SLA's LICAT ratio. Our financial leverage at the end of the first quarter was 22.7%. This remains below our long-term target of 25%, and coupled with the $2.3 billion of excess cash of the holding company provides us with significant financial flexibility. Slide 8 outlines the performance for each of the business groups. Canada's reported net income of $405 million increased $447 million over the prior year, predominantly driven by favourable equity markets. While rising interest rates were also favourable, this was largely offset by tighter credit spreads. Underlying net income increased by $29 million, driven by business growth and favorable credit and mortality experience, partially offset by lower investing gains. U.S. reported net income of $211 million increased $47 million compared to the prior year, primarily driven by lower ACMA charges and favorable market-related impacts. Underlying net income increased $10 million, reflecting favorable morbidity experience and stop loss and long-term disability. This was partially offset by lower investing gains, lower earnings on surplus, and unfavorable mortality experience. Asset management reported net income of $230 million, a decline of $9 million compared to the first quarter last year, as fair value adjustments for MFS share-based awards were largely offset by an increase in underlying net income. MFS underlying net income of $291 million was up $49 million, driven by AUM growth. MFS ended the quarter with a pre-tax net operating profit margin of 39%. SLC management's underlying income was in line with the prior year. The contributions from Infrared and Crescent were offset by timing of compensation expenses and lower real estate fund catch-up fees. As discussed at the Investor Day in March, SLC management has good fundamentals with significant amounts of capital that will be invested and become fee-generating. In Asia, reported net income of $198 million increased by $98 million from the prior year as the business benefited from favorable market impacts. Underlying net income increased $4 million, driven by a 24% growth in expected profit and new business gains, offset by unfavorable mortality experience. Corporate had a net loss of $107 million, a $37 million increase from the prior year, primarily due to the $57 million real estate restructuring charge. The underlying net loss in corporate was $56 million, a $12 million increase from the prior year. The increase reflects higher spend on corporate initiatives and an increase in the value of share-based incentive compensation, partially offset by a higher contribution from the UK business. Slide 9 outlines the sources of earnings. Expected profit grew 10%, driven by good results in asset management, as well as business growth and higher fee-based income in Canada and Asia. Excluding the impact of currency and asset management, expected profit grew 6% over the prior year. 
Effective this quarter, we reflected a methodology change to include new business income for the U.S. group benefits business in expected profit. This is consistent with the treatment for the group benefits business in Canada. Going forward, we do not expect to see new business gains in our U.S. sources of earnings. This change has been reflected for prior periods. Total new business gains increased by $21 million over the prior year, reflecting pricing actions in the Canadian individual insurance business and higher sales in Asia. Experience gains of $425 million were largely driven by market-related impacts on rising interest rates and equity markets. We also benefited from investing gains, favorable morbidity in the U.S., and positive net credit experience. This was partially offset by expense experience as well as unfavorable mortality experience in the U.S. and Asia. Earnings on surplus declined 8 million year-over-year, reflecting the impact of lower yields. Slide 10 outlines insurance and wealth sales for the first quarter. Individual insurance sales were up 12%, while group sales were down 24% compared to the prior year. The increase in individual insurance sales was driven by a 27% increase in sales in Canada, primarily from strong PAR sales. In Asia, Vietnam posted strong sales growth driven by our new bank assurance partnerships. India, China, and Malaysia also saw strong sales growth with the Philippines and Indonesia down on COVID-related lockdowns. Sales in the international hubs business were also impacted by the lockdowns and travel restrictions. The year-over-year decline in group sales was primarily attributable to fewer large case sales coming to market in the Canadian group benefits business. U.S. group sales were relatively flat year-over-year as the higher sales and employee benefits were offset by lower stop-loss sales. Wealth sales excluding asset management were down 3% from the prior year. Wealth sales in Canada decreased 21%, primarily driven by a large retained case in group retirement solutions in Q1 of 2020. Mutual fund sales and sales of guaranteed investment products both increased. Asia wealth sales were up 48%, excluding the impact of foreign exchange, driven by mutual fund sales in India, the pension business in Hong Kong, and money market sales in the Philippines. Asset-managed gross flows of $58.2 billion were up 12%, driven by higher flows at SLC management. Value of new business increased 10% compared to Q1 of 2020, reflecting strong sales and higher margin VMB products across both insurance and wealth. Turning to slide 11, operating expenses were up 20% from the prior year. 12 percentage points of the year-over-year increase was driven by fair value adjustments related to share-based incentive compensation at MFS and Sun Life, the run rate impact of newly acquired businesses in SLC management, and the real estate restructuring charge, partially offset by favorable currency impacts. Higher controllable expenses and contractual volumes contributed to the remaining 8 percentage points of the year-over-year increase. The asset management business accounted for just under two-thirds of that growth, primarily driven by expenses related to strong AUM growth. And the remaining increase of approximately 3% relates to business growth and organic growth initiatives, including our continued investments in digital. Overall, this quarter's results highlight the strength of Sun Life's four-pillar strategy. It was a good start to the year. We remain focused on continuing to invest in our businesses to drive future growth while maintaining expense discipline. Now I will hand it back to you, Neve, to begin the Q&A portion of the call. Thank you, Manjit. 
To help ensure that all of our participants have an opportunity to ask questions this morning, I would ask you to limit yourselves to one or two questions and then requeue with any additional questions. I will now ask Adam to poll the participants. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question at this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. We'll now pause for just one moment to file the Q&A roster. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And your first question comes from the line of John Aiken of Barclays. John, your line is open. Good morning. Um, given the current situation in, in India, I know this is uh, reasonably early days relative to what's, uh, what's happening, but are you able to extrapolate any, uh, any impact on, uh, on the businesses that you have in the region? Leo, uh, do you want to take that? Yeah. Uh, good morning, John. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, as, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, the situation is very early days right now in the second wave in, uh, in India. And uh, the situation is evolving um, uh, quickly. Uh, at this point in time, I'd have to say our focus is really on um, the safety of uh, employees, uh, partners, and, um, uh, and clients. Um, uh, and we haven't, I think it's too early to tell what the medium-term impact is going to be uh, of what's currently happening over there. Um, you know, what, what I would say is that um, uh, we are benefiting from the capabilities uh, we have in India in terms of digitally enabling our employees as well as uh, digitally enabling advisors. And so operations are, are uh, fully functional and uh, we're continuing to see sales uh, flow through. But I think it's just uh, too early uh, to uh, have an indication on, on whether there will be material impact. So thanks, Leo. And uh, for my second question, um, given the fact that uh, you guys took a restructuring charge to rationalize your, uh, um, your real estate footprint, does this have any implications for uh, the real estate holdings that you have within, uh, within your broader portfolio? Uh, Steve, why don't you take that? Uh, thanks for the question. You know, it's, um, it's on everyone's mind what's the impact of, on commercial office space, uh, vacancies, valuations, and so we get this question a lot. I think that, and we have real estate, of course, on our own balance sheet, and we, and we manage big portfolios of real estate for our third-party clients. I, I think our, our answer is generally that, uh, A, it's still evolving. Uh, we, uh, you know, we actually are seeing in, in many of our properties uh, uh, more of a return to the office than we might have expected. However, we're certainly going to see in some instances like with ourselves at Sun Life, that people are going to reduce their office space. We really think it's going to be property and city specific. So there will be certain cities, like in Asia, Tokyo, for instance, where we don't think there'll be any impact at all. Some, some cities like New York may have a bigger impact, less so in a city like Boston. Uh, certain properties may be more impacted than others. So overall, I think certainly we're going to see a decline in occupancy for some period across commercial office space broadly but the impact uh, will be very specific by property 
uh, and city. Overall, I think our, our properties are well positioned. We've got strong properties in good markets, and so we're not we're not too worried about the overall impact on our, our the specific properties that we own. Thanks for the cover, Steve. And your next question comes from the line of Mini Grauman with Scotia Bank. Hi, good morning. Uh, so it's been a year since uh, COVID hit, basically. I'm wondering if you have a better sense of the ultimate impact uh, of the pandemic on uh, insurance experience specifically. If you go across your segments, you know, we're seeing morbidity move one way, mortality experience move another way. But I'm wondering on a net basis, as you look at uh, the entire enterprise on a net basis, kind of what, what is winning out and what do you think is the ultimate uh, what is going to be the ultimate impact of COVID on those uh, insurance experience uh, risks? Many, it's Dean. Thank, thanks for your question. I'm going to ask uh, Kevin Morrissey to, uh, to, to answer that, but I think I'll just start at the top of the house and say that one of, the, one of the reasons our earnings haven't been tremendously impacted by COVID is this balanced and diversified business model where, yes, we have elevated claims on life insurance, offset somewhat by uh, reduced claims in morbidity, in certain areas of morbidity, and offset by uh, annuities. And so that balanced diversified business model has really served us well, but I'll turn it over to Kevin to take it to the next step. Thanks, Dean, and, and uh, thanks, Manny, for that question. So starting with mortality, as Dean mentioned, we've really benefited from the geographic as well as product diversification. So overall, we haven't seen a, a big impact, as you would have noticed, to our financial statements where we've had some gains and losses over, over the quarters. On the morbidity side, um, largely we've, we've been taking uh, gains, as you would have witnessed, especially last year with a, a decrease in utilization. Uh, however, that is normalizing across many of the products, and I would say that uh, uh, we'll have to see what happens longer term in terms of uh, long-term disability and, and potential longer-term impacts related uh, to the COVID disease as well. On the lap side, uh, we have experienced uh, a bit of an uptick in the uh, uh, lapse losses. Uh, since the start of the pandemic, what we've seen is policyholders seem to be holding on to their uh, policies longer, which is a good thing for the clients and, and is a testament to the value to clients in this in this challenging time during the pandemic. So uh, we have seen somewhat uh, higher losses from lapses, but at this point it's not clear you know, what will happen, uh, whether the, the pulsioid behavior will revert back at the end of the, the pandemic. So all in all, I'd say you know, we've, had, uh, we've, we've had quite good success in terms of our balanced and diversified business. So we haven't had big impacts as you will have witnessed. Longer term, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to monitor the trends and the longer term impacts. Uh, we, as you will have also noted, you know, we have not made any updates to our longer term actuarial assumptions, and I think it's just really too early at this point to make that call, but uh, we are continuing to monitor that closely. Thanks for that. And, and yeah, just as a follow-up, I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at, whether <clears throat> what you've seen so far kind of is indicative of what we're likely to see once this all wraps up, or is there something to be um, conscious of potential unanswered questions or risks in terms of how this uh, issue plays out um, 
uh, towards the tail end of COVID and, and maybe beyond? Tough question to answer, Manny. I, I would say there are certainly a lot of unknowns still ahead of us. You know, we've got room for optimism as the vaccines are being rolled out, but with the new variants of the disease, it does still raise a lot of questions, both you know, on the insurance side and then more broadly on the economic side. So uh, I'd say that, you know, we just, we don't know at this point. Uh, I think that what we do know is we've got a really good risk profile and position. We're comfortable with that and how we've managed our risk and our overall profile. Uh, and so, you know, we are optimistic ab about the future and we'll have to uh, wait to see how that will unfold ultimately. Thank you. And your next question comes from the line of David Motomaden with Evercore. Hi, good morning. Um, I, I guess I'd, I just had a question in Asia, um, and I'm wondering if you could help me maybe think about just looking at expected profit on Enforce. Um, how much of that is driven by wealth-related, sort of fee-related earnings versus insurance earnings? Um, and I, and I also, I, I guess maybe if you could just comment, Leo, just, you know, great to see the wealth sales up 48% year over year uh, on a constant currency basis. Um, also wondering maybe you could, you could talk about net flows, um, you know, after thinking about uh, withdrawals. Yeah, thanks, uh, David. Um, uh, it's Leo here. So on the first part of, uh, of your question and um, the, the source of uh, the, the gains um, in uh, expected profit, um, uh, so we, we, have, we are seeing some, some good uh, improvement uh, over time. Um, uh, uh, it's primarily driven by uh, business growth on the insurance side and, and uh, higher fee-based income. Uh, on both the life and uh, the wealth side of our business, um, uh, I can't give you precise numbers, but the you know the core of our business in Asia uh, still remains um, uh, primarily uh, insurance driven, uh, say about um, eighty percent uh, insurance driven, uh, roughly speaking, um, uh, with uh, twenty percent being uh, you know more pure wealth type of business. Now, what's you know, important to note is that a, a good chunk of our core insurance products are being used as savings vehicles. So um, you know, while they're insurance chassis, um, uh, some of that would be purchased uh, by our clients uh, for, uh, for savings purposes. Um, uh, so that's uh, on, uh, on your uh, first question. On your second question around uh, net flows uh, across, uh, across our business, um, uh, I don't have uh, those exact numbers uh, off the top of my head, uh, David. Uh, we'll have to come back to you on this one. Okay, that, that's helpful. That's and then maybe if I could just switch, uh, switch gears and, and add one in for Dan uh, on the U.S. business. Um, you know, good to see a continued year-over-year -year growth in the employee benefits enforced premium again this quarter. Um, I'm wondering if you could just uh, talk about and maybe quantify what you're seeing in underlying covered lives, um, if that's still a headwind um, from an exposure standpoint and how we should be thinking about that over the course of the rest of the year. 
um, you know, if, if, if employment does improve, would you expect to see a meaningful uh, increase uh, just from exposure growth in covered lives? Good morning, David. It's Dan. Thank you for the question. Uh, we're really seeing a pretty rapid recovery in employment in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, we, I think we had mentioned in the last call that we estimated about a 3% reduction in covered lives at the, at the bottom, uh, but that's largely come back. As we look at our January 1st enrollment, uh, it's a little hard to parse out all the different factors in terms of number of employees versus number of people who enroll, uh, but generally enrollment was higher in January than it had been in the prior January. So the economy and covered lives seems to be snapping back uh, rather quickly uh, and really never went down that much in the first place. Great. Thank you. And your next question comes from the line of Gabriel Shane with National Bank Financial. Uh, good uh, morning. Uh, the expenses at MFS, can you give a bit more? Uh, I mean, that's where there's some variation versus what I was expecting there this quarter. If there's anything uh, specific you can flag, then uh, sticking to this group, more you know, cross-border commentary here. And you talked about the uh, benefits utilization um, outlook. Is that comment? Uh, more U.S. skewed. We can see the employment uh, accelerating there. Canada is largely in lockdown, which might have a more lagged impact on benefits utilization. Just trying to get a sense for how long some of these morbidity gains can persist. So, uh, so Dean, Gabriel, thanks for your questions. Uh, why don't we start with Mike on the expenses at MFS, and then and then we go to uh, to Dan on and and then Jacques on the uh, group benefit morbidity trends. Thanks, Dean. Hey, good morning, Gabriel. Uh, it's Mike. Um, yeah, on, on expenses, you know, there's nothing, nothing to call it on expenses. Ex, you know, the expenses that are up year over year, year over year, are those that are tied to profitability or asset-based fees that we pay. Um, distributors, uh, if you look year over year on discretionary expenditures, they're relatively flat. So there's nothing really to, to call out there. Uh, and this is Dan on the group benefits morbidity in the U.S., uh, we saw a very favorable experience in the first quarter in our stop-loss business. Now, some of that relates to just how prior periods are completing. Uh, one comment that I would make within there is we've noticed lower uh, cancer diagnoses in our stop-loss business. So we do have a little bit of concern that there's delayed diagnosis because of people not seeking care uh, throughout the pandemic. But overall, stop-loss uh, continues to be quite favorable. In our long-term disability business, we had a favorable quarter as well for morbidity. That was largely based on resolutions, which suggests that there are jobs for people to go back to, uh, kind of consistent with the question I asked, answered a, a moment ago. Uh, okay. And so overall, our morbidity, you know, was favorable in the first quarter. Great. And and. Gabriel, this is Jacques. I can go next. Yep. So your, yeah, your, your question was specifically on benefit utilization. It's pretty well back to normal. We did have, as you know, a favorable experience in quarter one 2020 that was driven in large part by the second half of March closure 
but we're we're pretty well back to normal. The morbidity issues in Canada this quarter is more to do with uh, our disability business. And one of the, you might recall, because I've talked about this before, we're watching very closely incidents as well as recoveries. Incidents are in line. What we're seeing in recoveries, and this is, in my view, COVID-related, is a lack of access to care, which means that it makes it longer for people to get back to work. So that's really what's the main driver of our mobility experience this time around. All right, that's uh, interesting clarification. Merci, Jacques. Bye, everybody. Okay. And your next question comes from line of Tom McKinnon, BMO Capital. Yeah, thanks very much. Good morning. Um, a couple things. With respect to Asia, if I look at the impact of new business, uh, it was, you know, modestly negative, but uh, uh, if I look at it compared to the fourth quarter, it's uh, a big improvement despite the fact that sales in the first quarter of this year are actually lower than they were in the fourth quarter. So was that mix-related and how sustainable is that? Uh, and then on the investment gain, the $74 million, I think you used to talk about 30 to $35 million a quarter. So um, uh, why was it outsized? Are we still looking at something like 30 to 35 going forward? And then, uh, and then finally, you have an other expense hit of $33 million in the quarter, and I think that's related to kind of special projects. But, you know, every company has special projects, so why aren't they just, like, part of your expected profit, and what is the outlook for those things going forward? Thanks. So, Tom, that's those three questions. We'll start with uh, Leo, and then uh, on the investment gain, go over to Randy, and uh, your question on expenses, I think, was your third one. Um, we'll go to uh, Kevin Morrissey. So, Leo, why don't you start? Yeah, good morning, Tom. Uh, thanks for the question on, on new business gain. Uh, let, let me touch it uh, from, uh, from a few different uh, uh, facets. Uh, uh, you know, if you look at uh, uh, the results in Q1, um, uh, we did have uh, uh, lower new business gains year over year, which we're quite happy about. Uh, you mentioned a shift in uh, business mix. That, that is one factor that we're seeing. But I'd call out uh, a few others. Um, uh, we did um, uh, see uh, strong sales um, um, across the region with double-digit growth um, uh, in uh, four of our markets um, uh, that have good new business gains. Uh, and I know that um, uh, it's lower quarter over quarter, but uh, higher year over year. Um, there is a mixed impact here uh, in terms of the, the type of products that uh, we are selling uh, this quarter. So that explains uh, the, the difference in terms of lower sales, but, uh, but similar uh, quarter over quarter new business gain. Uh, the other things that are happening is um, uh, we are seeing some stronger sales, as uh, you know, in Vietnam from our uh, new bank partnerships. And so that is contributing to, to the results. Um, uh, and then we've also seen uh, improvements in our expense gap um, driven by um, uh, the work we've been doing on, on expense discipline, managing um, uh, our expenses, as well as um, improvements in our product designs. And so all of those things, it's, it's, uh, yes, it's the, the product mix, but it's a number of management actions that we've been taking during the pandemic and, and even before 
that are really contributing to all of this, uh, investment in distribution excellence, improvements in our, in our, um, um, uh, in our expense structure, uh, digitization of our business to improve client experience. All of these things are, are contributing to, um, uh, to the improvement in new business gains. And then Randy, why don't you talk about investing gains and, uh, and uh, I think part of the question was also the guidance around that and Manjit will cover off that part of it. But Randy, over to you. Okay, good. Tom, uh, thank you for the question. This is Randy. So we had uh, strong activity gains in the quarter really driven by um, strong sourcing in private fixed income. So we, uh, we, we were able to source some attractive deals uh, that were negotiated, and um, and so that that's really what drove those activity gains. And you know, you do see lumpiness in that number quarter to quarter, um, but uh, but they were they were high quality gains this quarter. And let me turn it over to uh, Manjit in terms of guidance. Oh, was it? Was yeah. it okay, sorry, Tom. Sorry, Tom. Did you have another follow up? No, I was just uh, where you're going to talk about the guidance with respect to yeah. Yeah, good morning. So it's Manjit. Um, so I agree with Randy's comments that these will bump around quarter to quarter just given the, the market environment. The previous guidance we've sort of given you is sort of 15 to 30, 30 million pre-tax, and we think we're, we're over a cycle. That's uh, still an appropriate amount. Okay, great. And then the last one on the other expense. Yep, Tom, this is Kevin. Thanks for that question. So the minus 33 million this quarter, it was on the high side. You asked, you asked about this, was that driven by special projects? The answer is really no. It really wasn't driven by special projects, although special projects you know, are a component uh, within that, that line of the uh, source of earnings. Um, you also asked about why, it, why is it not an expected profit. I, I wanted to highlight that we do have uh, special projects and we do have project costs that are included in, in the expected profit line. Not all of them, though. And so the distinction that we make is really kind of the longer-term nature of them. So if, some, so if projects or costs are going to be longer-term, more sustainable, we do include that in expected profit. Some of the shorter-term projects, like the IFRS 17, which are kind of ticking this year and then will be declining significantly going forward, those are in the other experience line. So the driver this quarter, um, you know, we have a lot. It's tough to point to one thing, frankly, because we do have, you know, it could be a dozen or more small things, and they are all small in each business group, and there's pluses and minuses. But one of the, the, the things I'll highlight this quarter is that the accounting recognition by quarter can be, can be different than, than the anticipated, uh, what's anticipated in the actual liabilities for some sources, for example, premiums and commissions this quarter. So there was a bit of a mismatch in timing on the premiums and commission side. So it did create some quarterly volatility, but that will even out over the course of a year. And I do also just want to remind you that the minus 15 million guidance that I've referred to in the past is really a longer term average, and you should expect, should not expect to see an even quarterly trend and, and that will bump up and down as we have seen over the last a uh, little while, over the last four quarters, in fact, the average has been minus seven, so it's actually been below that run rate, but it will be up and down uh, quarter to quarter. Okay, thanks for that. And your next question comes from the line of Paul Holden of CIBC. Thank 
you. Good morning. I'll just ask uh, one question. I want to ask about Sun Life's participation in the pension risk transfer uh, business, given the recent transaction with, uh, with GM Canada. So two questions on this front. One is, can you give us a better sense of risk appetite in this business? And I partly ask that from the context of, I think the GM business was the first one where you kind of spread around the risk. So are there more, is there more willingness to do that, bringing in uh, multiple partners? And then two, I mean, how do you kind of view that market opportunity over the next you know, 12, 24 months? We are hearing anecdotal evidence that there should be a, an increased amount of activity uh, in the near term. So uh, I'll leave it there with those two questions. Dean, do you want me to start, Mr. Jacques? Yeah, yeah, please, please Jacques. Thank you, Dean, and, and thank you, Paul, for your question. Uh, maybe I'll start by, just to make sure there's no confusion, I'll start by pointing out that while the press release on GM came out in the first quarter, this is really a deal that we did in Q3 last year, Paul. And, and uh, you know, there's a timing in terms of sometimes where the, uh, when we put the thing on the book and when we, we make the announcement. So So that's the first point. In terms of the the risk appetite and the market opportunity, I think you will remember we we view defined benefit solutions very much as one of our growth engine in Canada. We think this is a very healthy market. There are two other similar markets in the world, that's the US and the UK, and they're much more mature and developed. So we think that's a market that has a lot of runway ahead of it. Um, you know, there are situations where clients will spread, as you say. And the GM1, as you saw, we got the bulk of it, but it, it, they, did, uh, they did give some slice of it to other insurers. You know, we've been the leader in that business, Paul, for basically eight or nine years now. You know, we have, um, in my view, I'm probably biased, but the strongest, strongest team in, in the industry on this. So one of the things that does for us is we, we, we tend to basically have a, have a look at pretty well every deal that comes to market. And that allows us to be selective on you know which ones we're more interested in and, and which ones we might be less. So overall, this is a, this very much remains one of our growth engine. We think the market is going to continue to grow. Uh, many many defined benefit plans are on what we call de-risking glide paths, and you know the last step, as you know, on on a path like this is to do an annuitization. So we think we're very well positioned, and, and it's a very uh, very healthy market for us, Paul. Okay. So just so I understand, with that GM deal in particular, if you had the option, you might have taken 100% of it, but it was really it was GM's option to uh, to share the risk among a number of players. Yeah, we we go through a whole process in these things of analyzing, you know, how how we want to approach it, and in some cases, you know, we might be happy ourselves not to take the whole deal and in other cases we'll want to take the whole deal so I won't speak you know deal to deal but uh, as I said earlier you know we have the ability which is nice to be quite selective on all these deals and we'll continue to exercise that okay thank you And your next question comes from the line of Doug Young of Desjardins Capital Markets. 
Good morning. A uh, question for, for Dan, I guess. We saw expected profit, Dan, in the U.S. 8%, and I would hazard a guess that's probably related to the adjustments made for the enforce. But what I wanted to understand, was there an impact at all from your outlook on the group business? And uh, with that, can you talk a little bit more about any competitive threats or trends that you're seeing in the group business? Uh, you mentioned it last quarter, just hoping to get an update. Yeah, thanks, Doug. The, the primary drivers for the change in expected profit, as you noted, were the lower interest rates and its impact on the IFM business. Uh, in the group business, we included some impacts from COVID, uh, which at least temporarily offset gains from business growth. And there's also an impact from foreign exchange, which has changed pretty significantly year over year. Uh, as for the, you know, whether or not that reflects increased competitiveness or different conditions, overall, not really. The COVID impacts obviously are something affecting all group carriers, particularly in the life mortality. Uh, and that should start to wane over time. Obviously, we see, hope that will improve uh, soon, so that's more of a temporary impact. Uh, overall, in terms of competition, of course, it remains a very competitive market, uh, but we don't see any you know, substantial changes in the competitive environment year over year. So you're, you're building in a weaker group results from an expected profit perspective because of your outlook for higher mortality experience in the group business over the next year? Is that safe, safe to assume? Well, that's, that's one of the drivers, especially during, you know, the early part of the year with the kind of mortality we've been seeing. So we did build some of that in, uh, so that, that, but the other factors are important as well. Yeah, okay, that's fair. And then maybe for Steve, SLC underlying earnings were down 8%, definitely below what we were looking for. I just and and obviously below maybe the guidance or the the, the, the what we talked about maybe at the investor day um, obviously looking out but but what I'm just wondering is there anything unusual in these results that kind of weighed on it this quarter just hoping to get a little more color yeah well uh, thanks Doug I'm glad you asked the question as Manfred mentioned we we did have some uh, kind of term one off or timing expenses in the quarter the biggest related to some appreciation in long-term incentive units uh, at Pentel Green Oak that we expensed in Q1 and hadn't accrued for throughout 2000, uh, 2020. We had some other charges related to some retirements and some other things related to compensation. And all those things hit in Q1, and it was a quarter when we didn't have kind of an offset where we had some kind of one-time revenues, as we saw in the fourth quarter. Um, I would say that our the underlying earnings uh, within you know our core earnings in the quarter are right in line with our expectations and very consistent with the guidance that we gave during investor day and and maybe I can take the opportunity just to make a few key points that may be useful as you track our progress going forward and, and the first is that this is a pretty stable business because our AUM is is stable and that means that the kind of the the basic core earnings driven by management fees are stable and they've been rising as our AUM has grown. Uh, but on a quarterly basis, you will see some fluctuations from time to time. In the fourth quarter of last year, we were above that kind of core earnings rate because we had some catch-up fees hit in the quarter, uh, some performance fees, and those fell at the bottom line. This quarter, as I mentioned, we had some one-off expenses. But the underlying kind of core earnings rate should continue to be stable and rising. And as I said, the first quarter was definitely on that basis in line with our, our, our guidance and our expectations. But that leads to my second point, which is I think one of the best ways to track the health of this business over time is by tracking our inflows. 
you know, our ability to attract new investors to our platform. And, and this quarter, as, as you see in the numbers, the inflows are very strong. Uh, on Dean's uh, first slide, uh, we noted that fee eligible inflows were $8.6 billion. And even if you deduct the $2 billion of outflows, that's almost 4% of AUM. So net flows of almost 4% of AUM in the quarter. Now those are going to be also lumpy to lumpy, quarter to quarter. Um, but as long as we can continue to do that, the core earnings power of SLC is going to continue to rise. And then the only, the final point I'll make is that I think the breadth of those flows is important. We've got a broad platform across many different asset classes, and and you know this was a good example this quarter. We we were, you know that 8.6 is made up of wins across the platform from fixed income, closing funds in private credit, raising a CLO, uh, doing a follow-on offering for our, uh, one of our listed funds in the UK and infrastructure, et cetera. So we feel like we're starting the year with some pretty good momentum. Sorry, Steve, if I could just clarify, the 11 million, is that what you're saying is core that's reasonable? Or are you saying 11 million plus some of, or if you remove some of the unusual expenses like the retirement and incentive units, that would be more what we should think about? No, I'm saying that, yeah, I'm sorry. The, the 11 million, I think, is, is kind of lower than we would expect because of those one, you know, those expenses that I would would kind of say were unusually large this quarter. So and have you quantified those? We haven't. Yeah, I don't think we called those out in our specific results. But what I will I will say is this: we we kind of I think during investor day gave a sense of what we thought our core underlying earnings rate was yeah. today. This quarter was consistent with that, and it's also consistent with the longer term guidance that we gave. Good. Thank you. And your next question comes from the line of Nigel D'Souza of Veritas Investments Research. Uh, thank you. Good morning. I had a question for you on you know, interest rate sensitivity. And when I look at uh, your table on interest rate sensitivity and kind of drill down to the OCI component, uh, you know, I noticed that the impact uh, through OCI from a 50 basis points parallel shift is still about $250 million, uh, this quarter versus last quarter, so it hasn't changed. Uh, and I understand that you round that up to the, or down to the nearest $50 million, but uh, maybe could you speak to what's helping you minimize the uh, interest rate sensitivity or the impact of uh, interest rate shifts to, to LICAT and, and how you've uh, managed to uh, mitigate that risk? Nigel, it's Dean. Thanks for that question. We're going to ask Kevin Morrissey to take it. Yeah, thanks for that question, Nigel. So in terms of uh, our LICAT, our sensitivity, you would have, we would have noticed that the sensitivity did come down this quarter. And that's a, that's a bit of a function of the interest rate environment. So without going into too much detail, because there is quite a bit of complexity into all the moving pieces in the numerator and the denominator. But the, the size of the, the, the shocks, I will note, do go up and down with the different changes in the economic environment. And so what we've observed is in the current environment, which is higher interest rates generally, especially across North America, we've seen our sensitivity come down on, on both the up and the down shots. And I think that's, that's a good profile. And I think it's also a bit of a natural profile, too, in, in, as, a, as the environment becomes less stressed, we're seeing kind of less, less movement and, and less counter, uh, uh, kind of cyclicality in the moves. Uh, as we're moving out of the, the stress interest rate environment. That's really helpful. And if I could just finish off with a broader question on uh, earnings on surplus. We've seen a pretty sizable increase in yields recently in the first quarter. Uh, and I know it takes a while for that to uh, flow through to invested assets and invested asset returns, but uh, do you have a sense of when 
underlying net income could start benefiting through higher earnings of surplus if yields stay where they are or continue to move higher. I can take, I can take, it's Kevin's train, I can take that one. You we're still expecting the earnings on surplus to be roughly 100 million. That's kind of what we've talked about in the past. Uh, and uh, you can kind of expect it to be in that range. We will get a benefit longer term of the rising interest rate, but we're also losing some AFS gains. And so you get kind of a, some pluses and minuses. And so we're kind of focusing on the, 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 the net number there, the 100 million. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. And your next and question is from Humphrey Lee with Dowling and Partners. Uh, good morning, and thank you for taking my, taking my questions. Uh, my first question is about net flows in MFS. Uh, you you have very strong growth sales. I think it might be one of the the, the strongest in, in, in mutual funds. Uh, but redemptions kind of spiked up in, in, in the quarter. I was just wondering if you have any color that you can share in terms of what you saw in uh, mutual fund net flows? Yeah, good morning, uh, Humphrey. It's Mike. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly had strong gross sales in the quarter. I mean, there are two, two parts of the business where we saw higher redemptions. The first would be where we were not, I guess, which was not surprising, was the institutional business. That's a primarily today an equity book of business. And, you know, we see when markets are at all-time highs, you see de-risking and rebalancing back uh, um, into fixed income during those periods of time, which is the converse of what we saw a year ago where we saw better flows in that business. So that was not surprising. You know, year over year on our non-U.S. retail business, so our U.S. retail business continues to generate strong gross and strong net. On the non-U.S. retail, we did see higher redemptions in the quarter, driven by, I think, a couple factors. One is is we've seen um, – sort of the market, particularly in Europe, move more to thematic products. So as you see, you know, things like technology and many of the other themes that are playing out in the marketplace, we do see investors chasing some of those trends in, within that channel. The second to call out would be, you know, a year ago, our best selling product was a hedged equity product. And so <clears throat> it's a product through cycle that's going to produce a return relative to cash. Uh, investors cared a lot about that a year ago when they were worried about downside, and investors today clearly aren't focusing on downside. And so we've seen net flows go from positive in that particular product to negative. And so those would be the things that I'd call up from a net perspective. But, you know, again, you know, last year was an outsized year for us relative to the industry, driving really strong net when the industry continued to struggle and active. And I think, you know, the way that we look at it is a, a relatively flat quarter uh, when money continues to move and chase performance, uh, you know, we're, we're relatively pleased. Uh, the thing that we control is, is gross flows, and we continue to see strong gross. Got it. Thank you. Uh, my second question is related to infos management. Uh, I think in the past you've talked about you like the business and you, 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 you focus on optimizing it and, and drive better cash flows and, and value all of it. But given the, the increased interest in risk solutions, uh, especially in the U.S., and pricing seems to be getting better. Has your thinking related to impulse management changed? Yeah, hi, Humphrey. It's Dean. Thank you for that question. You know, I think the, uh, you're right to, to note the interest in these businesses, but I would say that that's not new. You've seen lots of interest in closed block, especially closed block insurance businesses in the United States uh, over the past number of years. And my guess is, as you look ahead, you'll continue to see lots of interest in those businesses. 
particularly as more capital moves from public to private hands. So, you know, I think we, we've been consistent on this. We, we've been focusing on improving the execution and the performance of the enforce management business. We've made great progress, great progress on, you know, expenses, on, on uh, capital, on tax, on, on um, you know, dealing with some of the, uh, the issues, including stranger-owned life insurance, where we've made great progress sorting out some of those issues. And we still see some, uh, there's some opportunity there left yet. Um, but, but clearly, you know, it's not a, it's not a uh, growing business uh, for us, and uh, that's something that we'll think about as we go ahead, um, like we do with all of our businesses. We, we think about where they fit in the overall four-pillar strategy, and uh, you've seen us, um, you've seen us, you know, add, subtract, change that mix over time. So, um, so we think about that th uh, for all of our businesses. Got it. Thank you. We have no further questions at this time, and I will turn things to Mr. Bitten for closing remarks. Thank you, Adam. I would like to thank all of our participants today, and if there are any additional questions, we will be available after the call. Should you wish to listen to the rebroadcast, it will be available on our website later this afternoon. Thank you, and have a good day. This concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may now... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.